Okay, tonight I want you to put a marker in your Bible at these scriptures because we're going to go. I'll refer back to them uh, in case you have to turn back to them uh, quickly. 1 Corinthians 11.3, 1 Corinthians 14.34, and 1 Timothy 2.11-12. These scriptures here that we're going to look at tonight are probably the most understood misunderstood in the Bible, and probably the most abused scriptures in the Bible. I would have to say that these verses have been abused in the, in the church, probably as far as I can see, more or pretty much so than any other scriptures, and are misunderstood by many. The one is, we're going to read it, man is the head of the woman, and I want to show you these words in the Greek and show you what's there and what's not there, show you some, some different things here related to these verses. And I do want to go to the Old Testament eventually and then back to Genesis also because there's something that in Genesis that should be seen. Now, this is not just uh, a teaching for women. It's a teaching for men. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So in this verse it says the head of the woman is the man. We'll come back to that. Then in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And uh, we'll just read verse 35. And, and if they want to, to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. And then 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence. Now, there are whole denominations that forbid women to speak in church based upon these verses that we read. They don't let them speak. They don't let them teach. They don't let them preach. Uh, and in certain denominations, they are not even allowed to pray out loud. Out loud. There have been women who God has used to go to the mission field and have actually established churches on the mission field birthed by the Spirit of God through them. Now, if this were the case with these verses, the literal interpretation, like you know, it's interpreted many times, then these women who have established churches, according to what people say Paul says here, they would not even be able to speak in the church, teach in the church, instruct in the church, guide in the church, anything, testify in the church. Now, in 1 Timothy 2.11, says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Look at the words here. Let a woman learn. I want you to see that, that word, learn, because women at that time in general were not educated, uh, they didn't go to school, the men went to school, the men learned, 
The men could read, and of course that's not a complete general rule, there were men that couldn't. For example, Paul the Apostle, he studied under the feet of Gamaliel, learned the law, he studied, he was educated, and there are others also. But mainly in the culture, the men were the ones who were out in public, they were, they were doing business and what have you, and they were much more educated than, than the women. The women would stay home, they would raise the children, and so forth. Now today, that is not the case. Women are educated today, and as a general rule, in many cultures, not all, but in many cultures, and many times women know more as far as education in general, you know, you know, pick a lot of subjects, English, whatever. Many times women today know more than men, but the setting here in this particular time, the women were not educated. So they were dependent upon their husbands to provide. And not many women were compelled to earn their own livelihood, which today it is quite different. There are many women who are single, uh, remain single much of their life, and they have to earn their own livelihood. Back then, that, that was not generally the case with, with uh, women. So... Paul was the one who wrote these three verses, or these three scriptures that we read, to the churches and one to Timothy. I have heard that Paul didn't like women. And some people say that, well, he didn't marry. You know, you, you men should be as I am, one scripture says. You know, it's better not to be married. But let's look at some scriptures related to what Paul thought of women. In Hebrews 13, verse 4, he says, Marriage is honorable among all. Among all. And then when you go to the qualifications in Timothy uh, and one of the other New Testament writers here, it says that the bishop, one of the qualifications for the, a bishop is that he is a husband of one wife, not that he would have to be married, but Paul says that, that that is a good thing. Marriage is honorable. And then turn to Romans. This is what I really want to show you. In Romans 16, verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria, that you may receive her in the Lord and in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So he knew that this Phoebe was among the workers of the Lord in service. And he tells them, including the men, that whatever business she needs of you, whatever she, need, whatever she needs to do, you help her. Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. Now they're both... Uh, again, two women there. And, oh no, excuse me. Uh, Priscilla was the wife and Aquila was the husband, which is actually the thinking many times. The man's name is mentioned first. But in, Paul writes this, he could have said the opposite, but he didn't. 
he said, greet Priscilla, the woman first, and Aquila. And he didn't do that by accident, by the way. Verse 6, greet Mary who labored much for us. And in verse 12, there's two other women, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. Uh, and these women that Paul is mentioning here, it's obvious that these women were a help in the gospel and they had some type of ministry that Paul acknowledges in the scriptures. He's acknowledging these women, that they, they, they had ministered in some fashion to him, to others, and he even goes as far as to tell the church at Rome to assist this woman, whatever business she, she has, whatever she does, you, you assist her in doing that. So Paul had a higher opinion of women than some men have of women today. And he was the one that wrote these scriptures that we wrote up on here on the board here. Now in First, P, uh, excuse me, First Timothy, let's go back there. First Timothy 2, verse 9. Now I'm, I'm going to read this and I'm going to insert the, well, maybe I'll wait because I'll wait till we get here on the board here and then I'll, Go back and do this. Okay, verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest, modest apparel. So Paul here first addresses the women's appearance. Then he goes on and he addresses their behavior. Uh, that they're to have modest apparel with propriety, moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let your women learn in silence with all submission. So in these verses, first of all, the husband-wife relationship, or you could say her behavior in relationship to her husband, had to be in order, which can be reflected, that relationship can be reflected in the church service. That's what Paul is getting at with some of these verses. What's going on in the church service? Uh, also, the wife, as I said this before, needs to be a learner. She is to have a meek and quiet spirit. And I believe it's Peter who says that, that she is to have a meek and quiet spirit, uh, which in the sight of God is of great value, of great price. And then in verse Twelve, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, or to have authority over her husband is actually the way it should be written. She's not to have authority over her husband, and what this is referring to is being dominant or usurping authority or, or being a domineering wife. Okay, she, she is to learn in silence. She is to take she should take a secondary role. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Keep your marker there in Timothy because we're going to come right back. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read this again in two uh, translations, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man, 
and the head of Christ is God. Now, I like the way the Amplified Bible renders this verse because it renders it, I believe, more accurately. But I want you to know and realize that Christ is the head of every man. The head of a woman is her husband. See, the head of every woman is not every man, but the head of the woman is her husband. If she's married, the, you know, her head is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In Ephesians 5.23, well, I'll just quote that. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say the woman. It says the wife. So Paul did not say that, that um, man is the head of every woman. See, that's how this is interpreted in many different churches and denominations. But the husband is the head of the wife. Now you see these two words here, and you can write these down. You can look these up if you care to. This is the Strong's numbers in the front, and this is the English spelling for the Greek word. This word here can be translated man, male, or husband. This other one here, Gune, 1135, is translated in the Bible, woman, female, and wife. So the word that is translated in the verse is determined by the context of the verse. See, like in English, we use the word man, man, husband, male. Now, if I use the word husband, we know right away that we're talking about the husband. This is one of the examples in, in Greek where it may not be as clear as English. It's not many times, but this is one of them. It's not as clear in Greek as it would be, for example, in English. So the translators had to determine which meaning to put in the verses. Now, in this verse here, I believe it's translated incorrectly. Now, it should be, as I said before, that the head of the wife is her husband. Or, it could, or you could say the head of the woman is her husband. But it's talking about the marital setup there. Now, go to 1 Timothy again. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now we're going to back up to verse 9 because I've done, I've done the work here for you and this is why it's important to study the Bible. Now it's good to sit and maybe it's, it's easier for someone to do it and teach it but sometimes it's better if you yourself go in and start looking at some of these things if the Lord is leading you in that way. But I'm the teacher, the Lord has led me to do this and I, I believe that this helps me to rightly divide the word of truth. It says here to rightly divide the word of God. In verse 9, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves. Now that is plural in the Greek. So it's talking about all women. Adorn themselves in modest apparel. We just read this. Verse 10, but which is, is proper for women, plural, professing God. And this is talking about all the women in the church with good works. Let a woman, now you can see it in English because it says a, it puts the article in front of it, a woman, but it's actually singular in the Greek. So now it's not talking about all the women in the church. This word here should be translated as wife, I believe. Let a wife learn in silence with all submission and do, I do not permit a woman, it's singular, the wife to teach or to have authority over 
a man or, again, her husband, but to be in silence. And in verse 13, really shows you here what he's talking about here in verse 11 and 12. He's talking about the husband-wife relationship, and then he goes and he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam and Eve were husband and wife. So he's talking about that in the context there, verse 11, 12, 13, he's talking about not just any man, any woman, but the husband-wife relationship. Now, in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman. Again, that's singular. So from verse 11 through verse 14, these words are singular. In verses 9 and 10, they're plural. And when you see that, that that throws a completely different light on what Paul is saying. Because people will come in and say, well, you know, I'm the man, I'm in the church, so, you know, I'm the head of every woman. No, you're not. You're not the head of every woman. Okay, from, let's go to Ephesians for a minute. Now, we're just laying a foundation here as we go along. From a spiritual standpoint, Christ is the head of the church. But from a domestic standpoint, the husband is the head of the wife. That's the easiest way to define this whole thing. Now, in Ephesians 5, verse 21. Now, some may disagree with what I'm going to say, but that's okay. Submitting, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And he talks about the wives submitting to their husbands. For the husband, verse 23, is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Paul is not saying that the husband, I don't believe, is the spiritual head of the wife. And if that was the case, if you had an unsaved man and a Christian woman, then she would be without a head. But see, Christ is her head. Christ is her head. He's not talking about spiritually, I don't believe. In the marital situation, it's one thing. Okay, so that, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll, I'll say this. So I'm to be the head of my wife, but if she is led by the Spirit and says something under the inspiration of the Spirit, then I am to submit to what is she is saying. So, you know, People don't do that. Men don't do that because they're too proud. But see, it's, the man has the responsibility to hear the voice of the Lord. You know, and if it's coming from his wife, then he is to submit to that. So in um, 1 Corinthians 6.17, it says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So that if I speak under the inspiration or my wife speaks under the inspiration and I, I sense and know that that's the Spirit of God, and I'm, I'm to come down under that. Because she's my wife doesn't mean I, I shouldn't, because I'm the head of my wife in the marital uh, situation to set up, does not mean that I am to be Lord over her in, in a way where I am a domineering, ruling, you know, with my fist on her head type of a, a situation. And in um, 1 Corinthians 14... As we said before, he's not talking about all women because verse 35 states that she is to ask her husband at home. And we talked about that earlier. 
I have some verses, and we're going to read this also in Samuel in a little bit when we come to the submission thing. Must wives always obey their husbands? Well, you know, there, there's a scripture, and I have it here, and we're going to look at that in Ephesians that says she's to obey him in everything. Okay, well, let's, let's just go to, um, where are we going to go here? Let's go to First Peter. The classic scripture, well, we read a couple of them, but one of the ones that's used often to exercise control over the wife by the husband is the one that Peter quotes in 1 Peter 3. He is quoting a portion of a scripture, only a few words of a scripture in Genesis. And he says here in verse 3, well, excuse me, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. If you call your husband Lord and you are his slave. (laughs) No. See, there's something going on. And I'm kind of getting all over the place here, but there's a scripture <clears throat> that, that refers to as the law says, Paul's talking about. And we'll probably look at that later. But anyway, in chapter uh, 17, 16, 17, in Genesis, you see Abraham, he's called Abram, and the Lord comes to him and he says, you will no longer be called Abram, you'll be called Abraham. And then in the same chapter, he says to Abraham, Sarai will no longer be called Sarai, she'll be called Sarah. The actual meaning of the name, <clears throat> Abram, Abraham, is, a little, is the same basic thing, but uh, you know, Abraham is father of many nations. But there's something else going on here. Remember that Abraham had to develop as he walked with God, just like you and I. We have to to walk with the Lord, and over a process of time, we become more and more mature, and we move on and so forth. And that was the way it was with Abraham, and that was the way it was with Sarah. Now, it's after this time, the names, I believe, signify at this point that the Lord was going to do something different here in, in his life. And he is walking with God and he has developed. Sarai walked with God and she had problems and she you know, made some mistakes and Abraham made, made mistakes. But she developed also. And so after this, you see something very interesting. You see that Sarah, not Sarai, Sarah calls Abraham, not Abram, Lord, my Lord, she says. The spirit of what is there in the scripture is that she has developed and he has developed and he has walked in a way to earn her respect. He has treated her like the woman that she is. He's not walking on her. And so she says, Lord, in the submissive heart, 
and she gives him his due, if you will understand what I'm saying, in that not that he, he wanted her to call him Lord, not that he was, you know, pushing her down and stepping on her. And, and you say, well, you know, you're, you're no good for anything but cooking my meals and, you know, doing my laundry, which is what men sometimes think the woman's for, to serve them. But see, through his walk and his attitude toward the Lord and toward her, something was done in her so that she in her heart could say, you are Lord, you're my Lord. Not in the way that some men use that now and say, well, hey, Abraham called Sarah Lord, meaning that you should call me Lord. Well, by even saying that, I, I know right away that that spirit that was in Abraham is not in them, and they don't deserve to be called that. I want to read this from the Amplified. It was thus that Sarah obeyed Abraham, following his guidance and acknowledging his headship over her. Now that says it all, really. Calling him Lord, and you are now her true daughters if you do, not, if you, if you do right and let nothing terrify you, not giving way to hysterical, hysterical fears or letting anxieties unnerve you. What does that mean? To give way or give in to uh, hyster hysterical fears or anxieties. Over what? Over him being over her. See, because some women understand that. Or maybe you understand it better than the men do. That if a man is not where he should be, and they're in this marital relationship, this can produce fear and anxiety in the Christian woman to the point where she doesn't know what's, what to do and what's going on. But it says here that she acknowledged his headship over her. And why did she do that? Once again, it's because of the way in which he was carrying himself in God. So in Genesis 16, now, because Sarah called Abraham Lord didn't mean that he was to abuse his authority, you know. Do you know that men abuse their authority? I'm talking about Christian men abuse their authority. And you know what? The Lord sees that. There is to be in the marriage an order. And for things to flow and to be what they are to be, there is to be duties that both perform. But see, I can take the attitude that, hey, listen, I'm the man, I'm working, my wife's the woman, she should be doing everything at my beck and command, and she should do this, 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 and this, and she should do it like right now. And I can treat her like she's my slave, and like she's a lesser person, and she's lesser than me in the Lord. See, that becomes a heart attitude in men for whatever reason, and I'm, I'm talking even about Christian men, for whatever reason, and they, they have this view, of, now they love their wives, but they're without understanding. Dwell, what's it say? Dwell with your wife with what? Knowledge. Because you're going to need it. You'll see someday. You'll need knowledge. Dwell with them with knowledge. That means that you allow the Lord to teach you and to show you 
how to act, how to treat them, you know, what to do. There are some men that won't lift a finger to do anything to help their wives because they're the women. And in some cultures, that's, you know, very, very evident. I remember I was on the mission field once, and I went back to do something in the kitchen to help one of the women. And a couple of the pastors came back there and said, you can't go back here and do that. I said, oh, yes, I can. I'm helping them out. I only stayed back there for five minutes, but the Lord had me do that. And I don't even remember where it was. I noticed that, what, that some of the people were really, even the women were like, what did he do? So that goes right across some cultures. But see, as far as I'm concerned, the Bible is the Bible in any culture, in every culture. But we do things in certain cultures, you know, that are cultural and not necessarily biblical. In Genesis 16, let me see here. This isn't the verse I wanted, but I'll, I'll read this one anyway. Now, you remember this, the story how Sarah didn't have a, a child, and so she took her, her maiden, um, what was her name? Hagar, and had Abraham go into Hagar, and she becomes pregnant, and she has this child. So th- there was this thing, th- this thing developed between Hagar and um, Sarah. Remember, Hagar was laughing at Sarah because she couldn't conceive and so forth. Then Sarah said to Abraham, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maiden into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hands. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. And then it goes on and it says that, Wait, where is it? Okay, chapter 21, verse 9. So she throws out Hagar, and Abraham becomes displeased with that. He didn't really like that, see, because he didn't father the child there. Verse 9. So Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Now remember, she was not an Israelite. She's an Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore, she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. So Abraham's not real happy with this. But God said to Abraham, Do do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman, And then he says this to Abraham, Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. So Abraham in this instance was wrong. Sarah was right, and the Lord sides with Sarah, or Sarah, and here this time it's Sarah, who was the wife. See, so must wives always obey their husbands? Well, here's an example in the Bible where the woman, the wife, did not obey her husband, and God was on her side. So sometimes, you know, men look at some of these scriptures, and they just see with tunnel vision. They see this one scripture, and that's it. Well, what's the other scripture say? What's the Old Testament? What's the New Testament? 
comparing spiritual with spiritual to get a more rounded view of what is actually being said. You can take a scripture and you can build a doctrine on it. You can take a scripture and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. But that doesn't mean it's true. Well, the scripture is true, but what we do with it may not be true. Ephesians, we'll stay there in, in Genesis, I think. Let me read a verse from uh, Ephesians. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their husbands, uh, let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. Wow. That's in Ephesians 5.24. Now, remember, whenever Adam and Eve sinned, and I'll just read this verse real quick. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your uh, conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Whenever man sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, at that point, competition came in related to the sexes. It was never there before. A better way to say it is that's when the power struggle began between the husband and the wife. And you see it going on even today. Better that we lay that down in the marriage than to hold on to that. Better the husband lay it down, better the wife lay it down so there's not a power struggle. But to come under the order that the Lord has set for us. So when Christ came, Christ brought a truce between the man and the woman. Sin brought the power struggle. Live with them in peace. Live with them in knowledge. So is the husband the spiritual head of the wife, or is he just the, the head of the family and the family arrangement? Is the, is the husband the spiritual head of the wife? The verse we said in Ephesians, that, he, that she is to be subjected, subject to him in everything, it says, everything. So if he tell, a man tells his wife, now listen, the funds are running low, and I want you to be a prostitute and go out on the street and just Christian wife. Should she do that? Well, she, it just says that She's to listen to him in everything. Okay, if he says, I want you to kill yourself, commit suicide, and kill the kids too, should she do that? Well, didn't it just, we just read the verse that she's to be in subjection to him in everything. Now, what's going on here? What about if he um, says, oh, go out and rob a bank? If I would say that to my wife, should she obey me? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. She is to listen to her husband in every lawful thing. Not in everything. Everything doesn't mean every single thing if it's going against the purpose or the law of God. See, her spiritual head is Christ. My spiritual head is Christ. So that if, if I am her spiritual head, and she's supposed to listen to everything I say, and I say, go rob a bank, and say, 
that's not being a spiritual head at all. I'm not her spiritual head. So remember in Ephesians 5.23, it says, the husband is the head of the wife, not man is the head of every woman. Also, I wanted to just bring that in. Okay, now let's go to Ephesians 5. Now, do you know this word here? I have to remember how to spell it. Anybody know that Greek word? You don't? I think this is how you spell it. This is a preposition. And this is a verb. The word hupo means under. And the word tasso means in rank or order. It also means, I should put this down because I, I like this, arrangement. So you have two words, a um, preposition and a verb coming together to form one Greek word. We do the same thing in English. Every and thing, everything. It's two words, but not necessarily prepositional. But anyway, we form one word from two quite frequently. Now, in this verse here, Ephesians 5.22, are you there? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The word submit there is this Greek word, hupotasso. And what that means is you are to be under, the wife, the wife is to be under in order or rank, or a better way to say that, that this is the arrangement of God for the marital situation. Each person has their own place for a reason, and the man has to shoulder many things that the woman does not. Or maybe I should say the husband has to shoulder things that the wife does not have to. So the greater responsibility is placed upon the man always. And she is to be in, a, in this position, and she's in a protected place from certain things. So this is showing here, when it says here, wives, submit to your own husbands. This is an arrangement that God has set up for the benefit of the wife. Women look at that differently many times because of the way this has been abused you know, by men. Women look at this as, like, a, why would I want to do that? This is like a punishment. But there is an arrangement there, and it's just like anything in the Lord. When it's functioning the way it should, it's really good. When it's not functioning the way it should, then it can be not so good or it can be really bad. So let me ask you a question. What type of submission is this? Sub Wives submit to your own husbands. What type of submission is that? Is he to be ruling over her? Go to Colossians chapter 3. Is he supposed to keep her under his thumb? Keep her from doing, you know, anything? Or, you know, make her do everything that you think she should do? You know, she's your personal slave. When Paul says, wives submit to your own husbands, that was not upon his mind nor upon his heart. Uh, the, the setup is seen with Abraham 
and Sarah. And also, of course, other places in the scriptures. Back there, because it, it refers, Peter refers to that, Paul refers to that. The setup is seen there, and Paul is not saying that the man now has this rule that he can, you know, just have this authority with this iron fist over his wife, so much so that she can't even breathe. This has been so abused. And the sad part about it is we know that men who aren't saved abuse, sometimes abuse their wives and, you know, rule over them and, you know, uh, wife abuse, they battered women and so forth. And, and men abuse that, some men. You take that over into Christianity and they may not have the, the physical violence, but because the, the Lord has not been able to teach the man what this really is, how he is to uh, exercise his overship, if you want to, whatever you want to call it, um, his authority over the wife, you know, in a loving way. Let me ask you this. How does Jesus exercise authority over you? He's, your, he's the head of, all, of the man. How does he exercise authority over us? Does Jesus come to you and say, if you don't listen to what I say, I want to punch you right in the head. <laughs> does Jesus do that to you? I don't know of anyone that Jesus does that to. Jesus gives. Jesus loves. Jesus is gentle. And because he is these things, it promotes our surrender. Not his authority over us, you know. Well, we'll all be judged at the white throne judgment, or not the judgment seat of Christ, I mean. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about him personally in your life. How is he to you? Well, men should be that way toward their wives if they want them to submit in the correct way. Not that you just be a lord over them, abuse them, abuse your power, abuse your authority, and expect them to submit the way they should, we make it hard for them. You know, they're supposed to call me Lord. Like Sarah did. Didn't you read the Bible? Women. So that becomes an attitude of some men that can even be heard in what they say. See, I can hear somebody say something, and I know right away that the Lord has not done certain things in them. I can hear them say certain things about their wives, and I know right away that they're not where they are to be as far as husbands love your wives. There is no such command in the Bible for the wife to love her husband. There's nowhere in the Bible it says that. But why does it say it to the man? Well, I'll tell you why in a little bit when we go to Genesis. If the man loves his wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, then God doesn't need to command the wife to love the husband, she'll automatically do that because of what's in her. Okay, in Esther, I'm going to read the First Corinthians again, fourteen thirty-four. Here's the verse, and I want to show you this in Esther, Esther chapter one. Now this is a little different. You know, these, you're going to see the principle at work here. You're not going to see this 
from a Christian, from a believer? Do you know that God has certain principles that work? And they work, it doesn't matter. For example, um, what a man sows, that what he, is what he will reap. See, that's a principle that works whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. See, there are certain things in the Bible that work, period, with man. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. So we're going to look at this and see the principle at work from a woman who's not a believer. So in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be in, in they are to be submissive as the law also says. Well, it says here, as the, you're to be submissive as the law also says. And I don't know where that is coming from. It may be coming from Genesis or it may be coming from Esther here. And I looked at this right before we came to class and I thought this was interesting because I could see it moving here. And, and so we'll look at this. Verse 9, chapter 1. Now, you know who Vashti was, right? Okay. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded all these different people, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. So he summons his wife, he summons the queen. Now he wants to put her up so that everyone would see her beauty. So they're not looking at him, they're looking at her. So, okay. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Okay? Verse 16. And Mamakan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all the women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded King Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. So the principle scene, this scene here is that he requested her or told her to come and there was something there in her that could not submit to him, could not come down. Now, if she would have came down and just did that, then there would have not been a problem there. But she didn't do that. And in the law, it's showing here that if a woman rebels, if she comes up and out from under this place of arrangement that the Lord has set up, then other things can enter her heart, other things can go on with her, and she can move along a certain line, and it can be destructive. There have been many, 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 many women who have destroyed their lives by not submitting in the proper way to their husbands. 
I said before that there are many men who abuse their wives and abuse their power. So you have both of those things. Is, is the woman more right than the man? You know, the woman comes out from, and sometimes men force women to do that. But if, if you have in, in the church the spirit of God arranging this so that the woman is in her place, the man is in his place, or the husband and the wife, so that when they come into the church service, that things are what they are to be. So that if the woman says, well, I'm not going to submit to the man or my husband, then she rises up, and now she's in the church, and Paul says, okay, now, with that type of hard attitude, let your, let your wife be silent in the church. For it's a shame for her to speak. Because she is not where she is to be. Not that, you know, the Lord can't use a woman to pray or to teach or whatever. It's not that at all. It's this principle of submitting and being submissive to the husband in the Lord. See, that's the safest place for the wife. That's the place where even if the husband isn't where he should be, that will be a place where she will receive a great feeding from the Lord. What she's not getting from her husband, she'll get from the Lord. And that's the way it's set up, as I, as I see it in the scripture. Now I'll go back to Ephesians. See, Jesus commands submission to us, but he doesn't command submission the way some husbands command sum, submission. See, he commands it through loving us, through his gentleness, uh, with his, his presence, different ways. You know, his giving of himself, even when we don't recognize it at first. Because of that, see, says, husbands, um, give yourself, um, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. See, we are to give ourselves to our wives in the manner that Christ gave himself to the church. And I'm going to tell you, that is one of the tallest commands for a man in the Bible. And, and it's just way up there to shoot for that. But see, even if the man fails, if that's in his view, then he's, he's trying to, to move into a higher spiritual place so that he can treat his wife the way Christ treats the church. If you had that in Christianity, you wouldn't have any problems in marriages. You wouldn't. But see, men become self-centered, very much so, more so many times than women. So in um, Ephesians 5, verse 21, or let's go to verse 22. We've been looking at this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now look at the verse before this. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, does that mean that we are to submit to one another in the church so that, see, now you become my slave, and, okay, you're his slave, and he's your slave? See, we don't think like that, do we? When we submit, so submit to one another in, in, in the church, it doesn't mean that we now become slaves to them and that Jesus is not our head, but yet the very next verse, a man will take that and say, you know, oh, my wife's to serve me, and, and he, he wants to make her a slave, without even looking at the verse before that. 
See, see how they take the Bible and they, they twist these things up. So it's really strange, but that's what happens. Now, I want to show you something. Should a wife always submit to her husband? We came up with the answer, no. Right? Look at 1 Samuel. I kind of quoted this before whenever I was teaching something very similar to this in church. I want to go and actually read these verses because sometimes it's much better to actually just read through them because people are not as familiar with certain areas of the Bible as others, especially when it comes to certain things in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 25, verse 2. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and a man, the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David's... Now, I want you to pay attention to David's attitude in this and how David is, is humble and he's very gentle in his dealing here with Nabal. Pay attention to that. David sent 10 young men and David uh, said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and, and, did, and we did not hurt them, nor was anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes uh, to your hand to your servants, and to your son David. So David's young men came and spoke to Nabal according to these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from. So Nabal here has this attitude toward David. And remember, even if he gave it to these people, not even knowing where it was going, this man had you know, quite a bit. He was very prosperous. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and came, they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. 
Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against his household. For he is such a scoundrel, this is Nabal, that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on a donkey. So she goes out uh, to meet David. Verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly. Now, well, let me just finish this. From her donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord... On me lay this, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservants speak in your ears and hear words of your maidservants, meaning her. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nab, Nabal, for, for as his name is, so is he, Nabal. And his name means empty person. And, and folly is with him. Then she goes on. And she talks to David, uh, verse 26. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, since the Lord has held, held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. So she's talking to him, trying to, to convince him that you know, what he's going to do isn't, what he should do. When Abigail left Nabal's home, she was disobeying Nabal. Must wives always obey their husbands? She did not obey her husband when she went out to David. David, she didn't, he, Nabal didn't want David to have anything. Abigail goes out in contradiction, and he goes. Out, she goes out in disobedience to her husband. Verse. 32, then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice, and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. David, David hears her words, and she was speaking what the Lord had put in her heart to David. And because she disobeyed her husband, all the bloodshed that David was going to, to cause here, he was going to kill all the men and, and who, whatever else, I don't know, of the household of Nabal. Verse 34, For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning, uh, by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him. So here's another example in the Bible where the wife did not come under the husband and the Lord, just like with Sarah, um, and the Lord blessed her in that. Because, remember this, because she did the right thing. And she knew it was the right thing. And the Lord put a stamp of approval on that. Now, this is, these are isolated cases. But nonetheless, they're in the Bible. 
So the husband's not always right. If, if you always think you're right, you know, you're in trouble. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Now turn to Genesis 3, verse 16. <clears throat> now I want to look at one little preposition here, and I know more about Greek than I do Hebrew. And as far as really getting into the language, it's very, very difficult. You almost have to know it and study it. Um, but I did find some things that were interesting. It said B-A-A-K. This is the word here. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring four children. Now this is after, of course, she sinned. Your desire shall be for your husband or towards your husband. And remember I said before, in the Bible there is no command for the woman to love the husband. But it does say for husbands to love your wives. In this verse, God says to Eve, your desire shall be towards your husband. See, so that is something that is birthed in a woman. It's there. And the woman does not need to be told to love her husband because if what comes out of the husband is correct and he's giving himself for his wife, there will be an automatic response from her or from her heart to her husband. And you can see this in this verse, your desire shall be for your husband or toward your husband. And then the last part of the verse is, and he shall rule over you. In most translations, will translate this word as over. Now, this is a preposition, B-A-A-K. Now, this is what it says. It says, this preposition is often prefixed to verb infinitives and is, in tra is translated by the word in. Charles Hahn, who studied Hebrew, said that this should be translated in. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't know. But if it is, well, even if it is not, the same principle I'm going to show you applies. But if it is, or should be translated as in, it throws a completely different dimension here to this verse. Because it says, he shall rule over you. Now, we know what over means, don't we? You know, I'm going to rule over you. I'm going to dominate you. I'm going to be your king, your lord. You know? If the word is in, that's a different place. If I say in, what am I talking about? In, in you, in you. Now, I want to read this from this Genesis book from Charles Hahn, just one chapter, um, little chapter here on verse 16. He says, this is an awesome, awesome statement. The condition is not simply man telling woman what she can and cannot do. 
It is a domination that affects the very core and character of the woman. So it is a domination in the woman. But remember, Christ dominates us not as we think of the word domination. And that is the domination the man is to have in the woman to where she wants that, she loves that, she needs that because, you know, her desire is toward the man. And then that which comes from him meets that desire. And there you have it. Some may rebel against the man rule mystery within them. This man rule is so strong that a husband has much to do in making his wife what she becomes after years in the union. The woman is the glory of the man. 1 Corinthians eleven seven. The wife whom you have had for these many years has been weakened or strengthened by you. The benefits which can come from the husband to the wife are compared to the benefits coming from Christ to the church. Wow. Now that doesn't mean if the woman is weakened by the man that she cannot be strengthened by the Lord. It, it actually, actually, that's what it means. The woman who is weakened by the Christian husband who is not what he should be in giving to her what she should have. She must look to the Lord, and I believe she will receive much, much more than she ever would. That's my opinion. Okay, is there any questions to this point? See, so this, this rule that, that he shall rule in you can be something designed by God that is very, very good, that brings the woman to a place higher than, you know, she was before. The man can be instrumental in that. The man can be instrumental in bringing his wife on spiritually further and further and further. Uh, and, of course, that's the way it's to be. Now, in um, we talked about that. Man's the head of the wife. When it says here that man is, I'll just reiterate, is the head of the wife, that means he has the greater responsibility. Men take it the other way. Think, well, okay, I'm the head. Ooh, hey, look at me. No, that all, all that means is that now the man has the greater responsibility in all this. So that at the judgment seat of Christ, the man will have to give an account for what he has done in his body. He was going to have to give an account to the Lord for how he has uh, used or abused the, the, the power, the authority, the rule that the Lord has given him in relation to his wife, which is quite, quite, quite a staggering responsibility because, you know, None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. Men make mistakes. Um, but nonetheless, the Lord wants us to continue on and to try to be the very best you know, husband, uh, father, and whoever that we can be. Now, in Ephesians, let's go to Ephesians 2. There is 
inequality in the marriage that many do not understand nor see. And I've said this before, that, that God, when he caused the sleep to come upon Adam, it says he took out his rib. It doesn't say that he took out a bone from his foot so that now Adam can step on his wife and keep her down. No, he took out a rib. The rib is a joining thing. It's an attached thing. It's, um, it's an equality. It's not, well, no, now she's under my, my thumb. Under, you know, I take a bone. I believe God could have taken a bone out of uh, Adam's foot. Well, what would have happened if he had done that? Man, the woman would have been really hard-pressed. But God knows what, he, what he's doing. So he takes, takes the rib out. And in Ephesians 2, this is a plurality. He's talking about men and women. He's not just talking about men. He's talking about the church. The church is men and women. See, there's an equality there. There is neither male nor female in Christ. Paul says. See, in Christ, there isn't the hierarchy anymore, only in the marriage. Uh, hierarchy isn't a good word, but you understand what I mean. <coughs> an arrangement, an order. See, that's only in the marriage. As far as spiritually, there's an equality. Jesus Christ did not just die and shed his blood for the man, the husband. He shed his blood also for the wife, the woman. In Ephesians 2, verse 6, verse 5. Now let's go back to verse 4. <laughs> but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And you see the word us is a plural um, pronoun. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ by grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, so there's an equality there. The woman, the wife is also raised up together. She's also sitting together in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. See, so there is not, in the spiritual aspect of things, there is an equality in the church. There's equality with the husband and the wife. See, that's why I said before that I don't believe that the, the man is the spiritual head of the, of the uh, wife. Now, I am the spiritual head when the Lord gives me something and it's the Lord that's coming out from me. But see, hence it's not, I am not the spiritual head. It's the Lord still, you see. And the same holds true with the wife. If the, if the wife comes out with something and it's the Lord and the husband recognizes that, then he's to come under that, see. So he's, under, he's still under his spiritual head, meaning Christ. So <clears throat> Christ is under the Father, Right? Do you think that Jesus is equal with God, the Father? The Bible teaches that. Of course, you know, there's some shaded areas, but 
It says in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, did, he thought it not robbery to be equal to God. No big deal. Is there an equality, the Father and Jesus? Well, I believe so. Even though they're different positions, he's the son. He died. He came to earth. The Father is in heaven. But that didn't make Jesus any less God. Same with the, the husband and the wife. Because she's in a different area, to, to different um, order, doesn't make her any less in Christ than the husband. See, so there's an equality there. And I'll read two, a couple more verses. Turn to 1 John 3, and I'll just read a verse from Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, that kind of says it all. In 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The women shall be like Jesus too, not just men. They don't have a corner on the market. So she's not a lesser person. She is not a lesser individual. She is not lesser in, in proper English, lesser in the Lord. She just is in a different order in the marital relationship. The wife has a subordinate place in the family, but they don't have a subordinate place in the Lord. And then Jesus said this to the woman at the well. You know, Jesus could have showed up there when there was a man there, but he didn't. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will be in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So once again, Jesus deals with women, the woman at the well, and he did not deal harshly with her like her seven husbands. Or six husbands, whatever it was. And she mentions. He did not do that. Why? Did he have not have more power and authority than she did? Of course he did. He's the son of God. But yet he treats her the way she should be treated. And that speaks volumes to me. Okay, any questions? Anything? Difficult subject to deal with. I try to give you a, a good feel for this. The problem is that when you look at certain verses, you want to attach the literal meaning to it. For example, uh, that a woman must be, have her head covered in the church. Now, we'll attach a, a literal meaning to that. Now, women have to go to church wearing hats. I mean, we were at church, some church in Ohio that all the women had to have their heads covered. All the men were not allowed to have their heads covered in church. All the women had to sit on one side. All the men had to sit on the other side. You know, all the old holiness churches were like that. So the Bible has, there's verses in the Bible that what is said is portraying a spiritual truth. Now, we should interpret the Bible literally when it's possible, but it's not always possible. Jesus said, 
that if, if your eye offendee, pluck it out. If your hand offendee, cut it off. He, didn't, he wasn't talking about plucking your eyeball out. He wasn't talking about getting a hatchet and cutting off your arm. So that's the literal interpretation of that. And many times we go to, to a lot of these scriptures and we attach a, a literal meaning to that and it, it totally misses the spiritual truth that was try, trying to be portrayed by the writer or by Jesus. And so one individual told me years ago, I witnessed to, to them, and they said, well, I think you're on the right track. They were very gracious. They said, I think you're on the right track. But remember in the Bible, it says that, you know, he said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. He said, until you sell everything you have, you can't really follow Jesus. And I just, you know, I just let it go. But Jesus only said that to one person in the Bible. He didn't say that to everybody else. And how does he know what the Lord said to me anyway? So we can center on one thing. We can take a truth and make it literal. And the Lord isn't even talking about that. Now, next week, I think we're going to deal with that. Let, let the women their heads be covered in the church and the men and, and so forth. That, and we're going to deal with some other things too in chapter 3 and 4, and we're going to look at that.